BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, The Reparations Debate. In today's deep dive, the recent trend of reparation activity taking place in various parts of the country. Are reparations made to black Americans for centuries of mistreatment an unworkable government boondoggle that will satisfy no one entirely? or a necessary at any cost measure that will bring unity and healing. And in our Courage or Cringe segment, Draymond Green debates Megan Rapinoe, vaccine passports, and Tucker Carlson's boss backs him up. Is the disparity of female and male athlete earning potential evidence of misogyny or misaligned expectations? Is requiring a vaccine to access travel a logical virus countermeasure or an unethical invasion of medical privacy? And finally, is the defense of a journalist by his corporate boss an example of journalistic integrity or evidence of tone-deaf insensitivity and racism? This and a whole lot more on this episode of TDR. So we're back. Week off. Yeah, how was Easter? It, it, it was good. It yeah. was good. It feels like once again, I'm I'm a, I'm a little nervous today because I feel like it's been too long. It's been a whole week. It's been too long that we haven't done this. There's a lot <laughs> you like can forget. Completely in very forgot time. how to record a podcast, but uh, we'll do our best to uh, not sound too rusty. These things can be, you know, as easy or as complex it seems as you make them. Right? Like we've been talking a lot about podcasts, and so much can go into it. You know, sound design and engineering and all kinds of stuff, and they get really pricey. Or it can just be literally right, just riffing, a, just randomly. Right, what somebody basically in the podcast industry right. told us recently was like it takes like it's like a stick of gum and like ten dollars, and you can do a right. podcast and everything in between. That's what makes it interesting and fun. Uh, yeah, that is true. Um, although you know the the thing that sort of st- that struck me the most from last week to this week is. Just remembering the amount of work that we actually put in to prepare for these things. It's crazy. Like, it is a lot, which I'm glad we do because I really do want to be prepared when we have these conversations. But yeah, it is it is uh, quite a bit. Well, we're dealing with complex issues. And this week, we've got a lot of fun stuff. Reparations in our deep dive. We've got Draymond Green and his uh, conversation, let's say, with uh, Megan Rapino. We've got vaccine passports. We've got Tucker Carlson. We've got a bunch of different stuff. And we've only got an hour to do it. Um, but before we get started, Jesus, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind everyone to do what? 
Uh, Patreon. <laughs> subscribe. Patreon. And Subscri- Patreon. Yeah. Subscribe first. Um, hit that subscribe button. Please help us to build the audience for this podcast by getting updated on all of the latest episodes, and that'll make you more apt to enjoy it and more apt to share it. And then secondarily, but equally importantly, please go to patreon.com backslash the diversity remix and participate with us in a variety of different ways. We can do um, shout outs of folks. We can let you participate in the conversation. We can have you suggest topics for us to cover on courage or cringe or in one of our deep dives. And it's just a different way for uh, people to get involved. So patreon.com backslash the diversity remix to check that stuff out. This um, deep dive was sort of inspired by a very recent piece of something very close to home for us in Manhattan Beach. But we're going to talk broadly about reparations for the next 20 to 25 minutes. Again, another subject that I'm sure we can solve in the next 20 minutes, Asus. Yeah, exactly. But it was kicked off like recently. And there's a lot of like individual things, like local things happening throughout the country that kind of been driving that subject. But um, where should we start? Why don't we get into uh, Bruce Beach and the case for reparations? So since last year, and especially over the last few months, there have been you know, growing talks about reparation, now to a large part reignited by the racial injustice unrest that sparked, you know, last summer, um, including the recent announcement that the House Judiciary Committee will be looking to review and vote on a bill that will create a commission to examine the implications of slavery and develop reparation proposals for black Americans. Mm-hmm. Right? Has that happened black before, America? by the way? It seems like something there would have been I, a committee on before. Well, it was... Um, this thing was initially introduced a while back. I mm-hmm. remember seeing... And I don't have it in front of me to, to quote it directly. So... This is not necessarily a new thing. Is it was already brought up before, but it definitely got like this was as mentioned. This kind of this respark sure. that happened you know, last uh, last year. Now you know, as we've kind of already hinted at, this is obviously a large and very complicated issue. However, recently there was an example to your point, Charlie, right in our backyard that mm-hmm. really brought this issue to life in a real tangible way, right? Because many times I think, unfortunately, when it comes to reparations. It's a difficult conversation when you think about historically and how to figure out the mechanics of who gets compensated for what. Can you even trace who really was sort of lineage of, of people that were actually impacted you, directly? Right. right? So it's all these the different things, right? Dimensions of it. Yeah. All these different things, right? Now, uh, Janice Hahn, the LA County Supervisor, recently announced her plans to correct a historical injustice by returning a parcel of beachfront property in Manhattan Beach, known as Bruce Beach, which we'll get into the why it's called Bruce Beach. To descendants of a black couple who lost their land over a century ago due to racism and discriminatory practices by the city. By the way, for those people who are not from L.A., how would you describe Manhattan Beach? How would I describe Manhattan Beach? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a really nice, like, I, I spent a lot of time in that whole area, all mm-hmm. the different, um, you know, Virginia, Hermosa, Manhattan. But it is it is very white, obviously. Uh, it's what is there? pristine. Yeah, very pristine yes, place. Yes, it, it is. Um, but it's one of the nicer beaches here in um, in L.A. Now, it's not part of, like, when you think about the beaches and the, the ones that are really nice, you think of sort of Orange County as one grouping. Sure. And, like, Laguna Beach would be one that maybe people have heard of from, like, you know, MTV shows and all that kind of stuff. And then you have the all the other beaches here, which would include, you know, Hermosa, Manhattan, Redondo. Um, and I would think between Manhattan and Hermosa, probably, I would say Manhattan is probably the nicest. And then second, followed by Hermosa, and then maybe Redondo. And judging by property values, you'd be yeah. right. Yeah. Very, very wealthy, affluent very, place. Very, wealthy area. In, yeah. in seaside location. but G- Great to go, you know, bike riding. We do it all the sure. time. I, sure. You know, so that's a nice place to go check out. Mm-hmm. 
But in 1912, Willa and Charles Bruce, so in reference to Bruce Beach, Bruce right, Beach, uh, purchased the land for a thousand two hundred twenty-five dollars. Damn, in 1912. I want to go oh, back. Man, I do. Can you imagine that? That's like that big, would be awesome. It's like Bitcoin, whatever it was, ten years well, ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, by the way, which immediately starts to speak to the problem when sure. you start thinking about reparation and the growth in value, especially when opportunities were removed from people. Yeah. Because of obviously all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Now they created a beach resort for black residents who had. Few options at the time, right, to enjoy time at the beach, which then attracted other black families who then purchased adjacent land, right? Now, as expected, this, of course, did not go over well with the area's white residents, right, which led to vandalism, right, of the individuals, of their cars, etc., and even an attack by the Ku Klux Klan in 1920. Now, by 1929, the city, under pressure from its white residents, uh, condemned the property of the Bruce family and its surrounding parcels and seized the land through eminent domain, with the excuse of planning to build a city park. An eminent domain is the kind of thing, the legal mechanism that the government oftentimes uses to create highways and sure. do different things like that, where yeah. you're like, listen, I know you've had your house here the whole time, but like the highway's got to go through here, right. so... But it sucks. And we're going to pay you, but, right. we're gonna, but you're but not going to be able to live it. here anymore. Exactly, yeah. right? So this is 1929, right? And once again, the excuse was, we're going to build a city park. Mm-hmm. Now, the land then set vacant for over 30 years, right? So this city park did not come in over 30 years. And until finally, a small park was actually built on a portion of the land when city officials got concerned that the families could take new legal action. And we don't know why that concern was raised. That yeah, a I'm new... sure there was something that happened. And I, yeah, we didn't get that, de- that detail, but it was mm-hmm. now, now we're talking about 1960s, right? Where we're, so think about that, right? So when you first think about when this happened, 1929, that feels like a long time ago. But then you well, go like, oh, wait a minute. In the, it's now we're in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And it's still the story sort of developing, right? Um, now, the land was eventually transferred to the state and then county in 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in her statement about her action, Janice Hahn, right, the, the um, city commissioner, the city commissioner said, I'm embarrassed to say that I knew very little about this history, saying that she was well a- aware of the scourge of racism in other parts of the country. But somehow, I thought that didn't happen here. But in fact, it did. By the way, and I want to pause on that statement. Like, that is, is, we have a whole week show that, on that, that whole statement. That statement it doesn't I happen here. It's so happened. emblematic of of the problem that we have. I think many times in dealing with sort of sure. sometimes the, the the ugly history that we have. And when we think about things like racism, like no, no, that's other places. That's not here. Not mm-hmm. here. We're super liberal. What are you mm-hmm. talking about? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and when you see that, it's yeah, in cities like in Manhattan Beach is exactly where it happened. Right. But it's, I think it's also emblematic of a larger issue, which is the one that I've made, that my personal experience has been the greatest amount of racism I've experienced in progressive places, not in typically conservative places, because it's a different kind it's harder to of see. racism. Yeah, it is a different kind, right? Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it comes off maybe with a little more of a smile, and sure. it's a little bit harder to dissect. But I think it speaks to the fact that this has been a problem, this was a problem in Jim Crow era, not just in the South, but across the entire country, right? Um and By the could, way, does she mention why she br- is bringing like this back up? brought it up? I, I don't well, know. It's not in the article. I don't know if you came across any of it in your research, but I thought it was interesting. Like, I, I what's motivating know. her now? Yeah, I don't know. Um, she did continue to say, though, and when I realized that the county of Los Angeles now mm-hmm. had ownership of the Bruce's original property, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do what I could to start writing this wrong. I felt that there was nothing else to do but to give the property back to the direct descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce. Right mm-hmm. now, to be clear, that's actually not a done deal. Right, as county supervisor, she needs the state legislation to lift restrictions that will allow the county to actually transfer the property. Right, because I guess in this current state, they can't just automatically transfer, transfer the property. But it, it, this is such an interesting, I think, dynamic about when you think about reparations. 
at least in this case, there's like a very specific plot of land to a very tied to a very specific event of it being literally taken away from its rightful owners for all the wrong reasons, right? And then trying to you know give it back. But the problem, of course, becomes as you think about this, this issue more broadly, is how do you do this at scale? What should be the right value that you then provide to people that are, you know, you're you're basically trying to quantify the actual financial impact that occurred to them, not just from their descendants being tied to slavery, but then everything that happened in between then and now, right? Which is, even this story kind of speaks to that, right? This whole idea about that they only built this little park in the 1960s as a way to stop any kind of legal action, which is so crazy that you took it because you're going to make a park and then it sits there for 30 years unused. So obviously it had nothing to do with making this park. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of speaks to all the wrongs. By the way, one last point, There's, I would just go back yeah. on the, we could start you know, diving into it. But the in terms of what this judiciary committee is meant, this commission is meant to look into, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, now their charter is going to be to examine slavery and discrimination in the colonies and the United States from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies, right? It would also work to identify the role of the federal and state government in supporting the institutions of slavery, forms of discrimination in the public and private sectors against freed slaves and their descendants, and lingering negative effects of slavery on living African Americans and society. So that's a huge, huge undertaking. To me, the though, the, I would say the biggest point of that is that I think is the most interesting is when you start thinking about the role specifically that the federal and state governments actually played. And they're very different. In creating roles. these dynamics, right? Facilitating these types of discriminations that, frankly, go way past the, the time of actual slavery, and right? It, it, and it gets like, you know, of how housing was done, who got loans. There's all these different policies and rules that were put in place that really impacted people and trying to obviously equate for that. And even the idea of what is the federal uh, government's role vis-a-vis state and local is itself, it's not like asking, uh, you know, should I, do, you want a, do you want your ice cream in a cup or a cone? These are fundamentally different things as it relates to this issue right. in terms of its workability, in terms of its morality. Yeah. I mean, look, for me, I kind of believe, by the way, this happened also in Evanston, Illinois recently, right? This uh, historic reparations program. It was covered a few weeks ago on NPR. It was yeah, the first- I, I remember the, hearing about it. I didn't include it on here in the notes, but yeah, yeah. The first city, I think, in the country to offer yeah. a kind of reparations program, but it was it was decidedly, at least from what I understand of it, a decidedly local thing situated around a pro, uh, a given neighborhood that um, you know of which people were you know historically impacted in a very unique way. There was like this very very local um, you know perspective to it, which I think um, made it a lot easier to understand what the right course of action was in that given instance. In the same case with this Bruce Beach, by the way, speech thing. One thing I would ask about this Bruce Beach situation is that the family members. I included in my notes here, but I, I read yeah. about it. Is that is what the family members are also saying? Is like, hey. First of all, obviously, of course, giving credit right to Janice Hahn for for taking these steps and pushing sure. to get this land back. Yeah. Said, but we don't want just the land back. Like we need to talk about reparations relates to the loss in income that we suffered by actually having to give up this beach resort that basically what they created. Yeah. Right. Since nineteen twenty nine. And, and what would that be? The case? And beachfront property in Manhattan Beach was you know, and I, I didn't have, I didn't I didn't see something that as she said what the what the value would be of that yeah, now. But you can it. imagine. Like, yeah. imagine. I mean, it's. 
crazy amount of money that right. we're talking you about. You put in a thousand bucks, you probably Just could pull a billion itself, out. You probably could put a and billion And then out. you start talking about the loss of income. What's what's realistically a beachfront strip on Manhattan Beach? Where it's got to be a billion dollars. Yeah, probably. I would think so, especially yeah, something I mean, of the size that they're talking about here. Because I mean, there, what they have now is uh, a house in Manhattan Beach. It's was, like the lifeguard training like facility. Sure. Like that's how large this property actually is. It's there's not just like, like a house. You there's know? like two, three thousand square foot houses in Manhattan Beach that are you know five to ten million dollars. Right. right. I mean, so we're talking about orders of magnitude greater than that. But that's part of the challenge, right? And I think part of the reticence of looking at this issue is the idea, the Pandora's box potentially that it opens up, right? Because now we're not talking about, hey, we'll just give it back to you. No, 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 no. no we're going to no. talk about what is the impact that this is? Well, and then we're going to potentially talk about other things. You know, hey, my uncle died because he took on a new job when he could have been at the resort. And now you got to pay me death benefits. I mean, there's like a billion things. Part of the reticence that people have, I'm not saying it's right. Mm-hmm. Part of the reticence that they have is that Pandora's box. The other one is... I feel in this subject, a lack of, which comes up again repeatedly in our conversations, a lack of agency that people feel about even having the discussion about reparations. Like, well, what role do I have to play in that? Uh, I don't know. Like, that's not my, it's not my cup of tea. It's not my conversation to have. So I think those are two like fundamental issues that we have to overcome. The thing that comes up to me though, even in your question about how do you do this at scale? Like I could even make a, a point, maybe not a good one right now, but a point about how that's not even the right question. Because the idea of trying to do something at scale means that all these instances are in some way uniform or that the payment of these things or the recompense of all these things is equally uniform. I think fundamentally that's not the right approach. That almost creates something from the get-go that becomes unworkable, that becomes kind well, of – that isn't going to yeah. have the same impact that this I Manhattan's think, Beach thing I think thing there's, there's, two, there's two things here because when most people think about reparations – I'm sure their mind goes specifically to reparations as it relates to the period of actual slavery, right? Like for those that were directly impacted in the moment of slavery, which ended in 1865, right? Like what is a reparation? As a matter of fact, one of the things that I brought up here is that one of the quotes of that is often used in mm-hmm. terms of assigning a value, right? Mm-hmm. is from this book called The Divide, Global Inequality from Conquest to Free Markets, where the author, Jason Hickel, states – it is estimated the United States alone benefited from a total of 222,505,049 hours of forced labor between 1619 and the abolition of, slavery, abolition of slavery in 1865. Valued at the U.S. minimum wage with a modest rate of interest, that is worth $97 trillion today. Mm-hmm. So that's a massive number. Now, by the way, other people put that figure at closer to nineteen trillion, but it's still a massive, massive number. Now that's it's more just, than it's more than the GDP of the country. Now pretty much. that is just of that period of time that right. slavery actually took, took place. But the Not reality to mention is the implications of it, the health like implications. This, well, there's the, that. There is. By the way, this example that we give of Bruce Beach that didn't happen until seventy years later. In a place that is not historically thought of as Jim Crow like era or or place, right? And mm-hmm. you know, in California, super liberal. But you can start immediately sort of start to peel the onion of how much of impact we're actually talking about and the different roles that the government, both at federal and state level, played in actually facilitating these injustices. And to what degree can you, to your point, and I get what you're saying, why it's not just simply a scale issue, is that the impact there is very, very different than the number of free hours literally worked sure. during slavery sure. versus in the cases where people post-slavery were being robbed of opportunity, I think the other, robbed of, of economic yeah. growth. 
because of the racist policies that were that were there at the time. I think the other assumption beyond the fact that this is an issue that only applies to a certain period of time is the medium by which the recompense takes place or the reparation takes place, and that is cash. I think there's an assumption that it's a monetary thing yeah, by anybody. I've, I've seen both, right? So one um, one that I was looking at is uh, Chuck Collins, who is the program author and program director of the Institute of Policy Studies. His point of view is like, look, you could look at this, of course, as cash or more than just cash, which includes, you know, direct benefits that could, of course, include cash. Also, mm-hmm. subsidies of home mortgages, similar to those that were built, substantial white middle class, you know, wealth after World War II, which, sure, like African Americans were basically excluded from that, and for um, Asian Americans, and for too. a lot, of, yeah, basically a lot of people that, and that's why people gain their wealth. When you think about generational wealth, sure. a lot of times it starts with homes and people that were like purposely left out of those programs. You could think, of, you could think of programs around education, around. Right. Around subsidizing well, and mortgages, I, and I mentioned Asian specifically, I like may, all these different reasons. I mentioned Asian Americans specifically, though, because there actually was a kind of reparation program post the internment camps. Yeah, of the Japanese the Japanese camp. internment camps during or in the World War II period. So there actually was a. It wasn't that much, if I recall correctly. I think it was like twenty thousand dollars or something. But right. I mean, you know, at that time, twenty grand. Like, what that, was it you, called? My bad. It was called My Bad. Yes. Um, you know, it's like My Bad. Here's some cash. Um, but 20 grand probably could have bought you a house. Maybe, you yeah, know, uh, sure. certainly a down payment, a meaningful down payment on one. So, right. so your point is well taken on generational wealth. But I think that those are assumptions that are made. And look, on the subject of reparation, because I think in general, before you even get to the Bruce Beaches thing, you have to almost square away with where you land on the area of reparations. Mm-hmm. And the caricature positions, I think, are the idea of like, look, I had nothing to do with that. That wasn't me that held any slaves. In fact, it wasn't you that was enslaved. So we don't know anything in anybody. Like there's that sort of, right. let's call it on one side. The other one is 93 trillion doesn't even begin to scratch the surface on what you owe me. And until it's an infinite, like I don't even know where it ends because there's no place to land the plane. And in a way, it's almost counterproductive to land the plane because the moment you do, then like, I guess we got nothing else to talk about. Like everything's right. fine. Like a check will just soothe this. So there's these kind of caricature positions. And I think you have to kind of reconcile with yourself with where along the spectrum you you sure. you, you lie. Look, I, good. No, no, I would say just on the, the I think you frame, you, framing those really well. Okay. Um, uh, let's start with the first one, which you say, which is, look, I wasn't around the time. You weren't around the time. Like, what are we talking about? I think part of the problem with having that point of view, look, to some extent, I could sort of understand that perspective sure. as it relates to reparations specifically associated with the free labor that occurred during slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. I could sort of understand that. But when you start to then connect the dots between, once again, how wealth is actually gained in this country. And to what degree were people benefited sure. specifically from programs that the federal government and city government put in place to create wealth in certain communities and deny wealth in other communities, then people, most of us, are actually directly impacted, right? When you look at the amount of home ownership and wealth that is among, if you look at Anglo community here in the in the U.S. and the, the type of- Yeah, it's like a 10X or something. Right. Yeah. That didn't just come because people here just show up, you know, a 20-year-old, all of a sudden, like, he's, they just did it all by themselves. No. That comes from generations of, Dude, of your bo- families bo- getting bo- those opportunities that other people were not. And, and micro, the direct that tie-in. exists in every scenario, everywhere, too. That microcosm of what you just described exists still today in the business world as it relates to race. We were just for on the sure. phone with somebody yesterday who talked about, like, look, it's real easy for me to raise money. I can literally do it on the back of a napkin. Yeah. I don't have to work that hard as much as hard as you guys do. Like, so that <clears throat> that's all about network and connection and the impact of other people before so, you. Like, I, I mean, I agree with that. Yeah. So my, I guess my only point in saying that is, to me, there is no argument 
that says, I have nothing to do with that, and therefore, why are we having a conversation? Which is different than I agree or don't agree that we should be, as a country, mm-hmm. trying to figure out a plan to how to provide reparations to people that were impacted historically because of the role that slavery and racism has played in this country. Mm-hmm. Those to me are two different questions, but I, I don't see any scenario where people can literally, with a straight face, say, unless, unless you're not from here at all. Like, if you just showed up from the UK, you're like, listen... Um, I have, you know, like my family lineage has nothing to do with anything in this country. I just showed up fine. Then you're right. Then you're out of that conversation. But if you have any kind of roots in this country and your family in any way was was benefit, which I think is most families, then I think you're part of the conversation, which is once again different than whether or not reparation as a country we should even tackle it because of all these complexities that are there. Even if you just showed up from wherever. You, yeah, odds th- are. <laughs> well, no, odds are that also that you, when you show up in a country, you enter into a compact, an agreement with yeah. that nation to, yeah. to, to you know, support its values and all that kind of stuff. So, like, you know, the lifestyle that you have now is nevertheless impacted by the things that happened in the past. So, I agree with you that that extreme is unrealistic because it completely denies the relationship between a instances of things in history like yeah it's not happening to me i didn't have any slaves you weren't a slave great we're done but that doesn't actually connect us with people in a community in a past that we all have in common right Right. so and also because injustices are not tied to just slavery i mean that's the issue that's what this blue speech example really like brings to light exactly nobody was a slave did not occur in in slavery yeah but yeah when you think about the the amount of value that was stripped away from these people sure right like it's it's crazy what about the other end of the ex- extreme? Because I agree with you. That's the, helpful to look right. at these caricatures. What about the other end of the extreme? The like, look, you know, 93 trillion doesn't begin to approximate it. And it's sort of like, in a way, this sort of self-defeating thing, because the moment we get to this thing, what does that really mean? Have we right. solved anything? Even if we find a number big enough and a check large enough, even though this, in this case it's bigger than the GDP of the country, like what, like where does that go? You know, that's the other yeah. kind of caricature yeah, yeah, yeah. spectrum. I, I, I think... The argument around what the dollar amount should be as paying people like a straight dollar amount, I, I think it's a tough one in my mind. Uh, it's a tough one to calculate what that dollar amount should be. It's a tough, to, it's a tough one to, to calculate who actually should be getting what percentage of that dollar amount. Because one way you could simply say is like everyone gets X percentage and that it is what it is. Uh, one way to do it, which I've actually heard, which I think is actually an interesting way to think about it, if you go do go down the cash route, it's like, well, actually tie it to what people's actual income is now. And to the degree, it's like, look, if you are in a position where because of family connection, et cetera, you're just at a different you know, scale in terms of the wealth you've been able to build for yourself. The reality is, while you also may have been impacted, you also, by because of a lot of reasons, were able to surpass that. And really, the idea here is let's benefit the people that really need the most help. Okay, I can sort of see that. The one that I like the most to think about is let's think about what actually created this problem to begin with. Right is the one second. Going back to if the if the federal and state and city government uh, played a role in creating this inequity, how can they play a role in addressing this inequity? Right, which goes into home loans, which goes into education, which goes into health. All of these different things that could make, in my mind, a really big difference and create better outcomes. Not just necessarily for the people that are impacted right now, but for their gener- for their upcoming generation. I think that's they start to close the gap in some of these cases. Like I would love to see more investment into these communities as a way to create better opportunities for some of these communities that, that, are, that are actually there. And I agree. So be yeah. able to like also be able to contribute more to society by actually being able to get more educated. And see what I'm saying? Like I agree with the that approach. Mechanism. I agree with the approach. What you're basically describing is almost like a de-averaging, right? What is the local, state, and federal? 
uh, response to this if we really are able to execute something like that in a de-average way. What I sure. fear is a one-size-fits-all, a kind of a federal version of, of this solution because I know, A, it's not going to satisfy everyone. Frankly, sure. it may satisfy nobody. Um, well, I think that's going to be cre- the case anyway. It may create. Well, yeah, it's mm, well it depends. You have to go through that waterfall. I think at the federal level, you're right. There's no solution that will satisfy anybody. Right. But I think that as you go down to state and specifically local, the Evanston and Manhattan Beach examples are super local. And when you get into that, what does this reparation look like? I think the federal government's role is to clear the way for those discussions to be had in a better way, like if they have any role whatsoever. But I think ultimately the thing that gets closer to satisfying the injustices of the past are things that are local in nature like this that are really addressing an issue in a particular community and expressing value to people in the community where they live. Look at the Manhattan Beach example, right? Let's say the federal response was to give every African-American or descendant of African-Americans, I don't know, call it whatever, call it a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. To the people in Evanston, I mean, in Manhattan Beach, they'd be like, what? Right. Are you kidding me? It's yeah. not even begins to address what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But in, that, this, in that case, even though it's a lot of money, to your point, yeah, it wouldn't, yeah. Exactly. It would be very misaligned, It'd be to, misaligned. to the loss that they had. It'd be and, misaligned. And, but I get that. It, there'd be no proportionality, right? So, so, and I guess all of this, because we're, we're kind of, I'm rambling anyway, but with the point that I wanted to make earlier was uh-huh. I, you, you kind of have to set your, your point along the spectrum of where you sit. I believe reparations as a philosophical thing, the idea of making things right, of repairing things. And by the way, there's a deep, deep spiritual tradition about reparations that we can go into in another show. I agree with that idea. You can break a window. The, guy, the person you broke the window can say, you're, I forgive you. You can say you're sorry. They can forgive you. And you still need to pick up the glass. Right. The window's still broken. The window's still broken. <laughs> yeah. So you got to go get a job to fix it or yeah. you got to sweep it up at least. There's Something. some yeah. type of reparation. Yeah. So I totally agree with that. But I believe that the model is more on the lines of what's happening in Manhattan Beach, what's happening in Evanston, Illinois, and that if the federal government has a role, it's to kind of make it easier for those conversations to happen, clear the way, do that kind of thing. But it makes me very, very, very nervous, skeptical, and frankly, well, the, against the idea if we put the onus on what solve can go across everybody. Like once, yeah, I can see that. Although I do question... Look, as much as we, we kind of a little bit were poking fun at Manhattan Beach, it also is sitting within a very liberal state mm-hmm. and, a, and a still a very liberal city. Like, I do question whether that actually could really happen in any kind of scale across the, across the country. Because I bet those examples like that one, I'm sure they happen all the time, all the time, all the time, everywhere. Yeah. And how but open what ha- will people be? And in this case, also the specific dynamic that you actually have the city and state that owns the property that is it's also not just recognizing the problem but that there is a means to be able to solve for the problem directly what, what about all the other land of the adjacent place that now people individuals own what are you gonna do there mm-hmm. right you're gonna, you're gonna tell the people to move out because your ancestors potentially bought this at a a, a piece at of a, land that, that basically was stolen from somebody else like that's tough so I think the this there's such a uniqueness look I'm all I'm off for what you just described which is in the cases where there is a tangible opportunity to right a wrong, and there is also a, a unique scenario where you actually are able to do it, right? Mm-hmm. You recognize it and are able to do it. Let's do that first, mm-hmm. right? Let's address that. I think in a more broad level, while I, I'm also kind of with you in the sense that I'd rather not see just straight checks cut across the board because I think it, while some people will really benefit, people will be like, obviously, are, are going to come in the short, short in the stick. I would rather see an approach where you start looking at those communities that are most impacted, that were most impacted, how do you start to create mechanisms to try to solve for that, for those issues? 
as an example, I think of places, of course, in Southern California, like Compton, like Compton Community City College, in my mind, should be one that if you want to start making reparations, I will make that 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 university free first for for residents of the of of the city mm-hmm. to go to go to at least start that process of being able to create better opportunities for themselves. That could be an approach. Things would, like New you, Orleans, like would you change that would are, you change are, the admission uh, requirements? Or just the financial. Well, if you think about it from the from perspective, all universities have a certain. I'm not sure about city college, but at least most universities at a at like at a UC level have a certain requirement of what percentage of students have to be like from the state from versus in, from in around the state. Yep. In around the state, so I think you could do some form like that where you say, "Hey, X percentage of this we're going to reserve for slots for people that are from the city," and simply say, "If you're from the city, we as a city are going to fund for anyone that wants to attend the school." Right, but I'm saying part that, of that of that portion. In that, that example, though, would you change the requirements in terms of a grade point average or extracurricular activities or things I, I like that. I don't know what the current for city college I just I just don't know. I don't know what the what the current requirements are to get I think city pretty much anybody can, Yeah, maybe right? or or if not how about this? The way that you would then do it is in the same way that at city college you could take like extension courses like mm-hmm. when you're in high school mm-hmm. then create a program to then help people because that's the other thing too. If you just create a scenario where you put someone in a in a in a dynamic where they're just not prepared for it, they're gonna fail. Mm-hmm. You can pay for it all day long, and they're still gonna fail. Sure. So maybe part of it is like, okay, if we're gonna make this more broadly available for for residents of the city, let's also create a program that helps people be able to catch up for what they maybe didn't get from their high schools, etc., or if they dropped out, whatever it may be the case, to help them be able to better transition, be better prepared. So it requires both an investment and a change of, of how people are actually able to access those kinds of resources. To me, like those are the kind of things that I do think could make a pretty significant you know, impact in terms of really creating a better opportunities for, for, for these folks that starts to chip away at the problem. I would look at places like New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans has tons of poverty, mm-hmm. right? And you start looking there in terms of what can you do in those like communities that were deeply, deeply impacted and start solving the issue there. I just, I'm, I'm a, I'm, you know, I, I'm a big fan in general of the local solutions because at least they are the most um, tangible in well, terms of- closest to the problem too, They're right? the closest to the problem. Well, that's kind of where I was getting at, which is this whole principle of subsidiarity that I've talked about before, right? Which is an organizing principle that basically dictates that issues should be handled by the smallest, lowest, least centralized kind of piece because, not because it's like a philosophical idea, but because right. it works better, right? It's like, yeah. if somebody falls down on your sidewalk, well, you can call 911. There will be somebody to come eventually and come pick them up, but they might be, they might have bled out by that. You could just yeah, run outside yeah. your house and grab them, you know? Yeah. So I like the idea of that. And because it kind of creates relationships um, in a better way. And so a- anyway, I think it's a, it's, it's a deep subject as we knew that it would be lots more to discuss, but I think it's yeah. encouraging that we see those two kind of examples, at least that we pointed out Evanston and Manhattan beach. And now let's see what the, uh, Congressional uh, yeah. fruit is because I'm not <laughs> yeah. super hopeful on that, sadly. But I mean, the um, part of that I, I would agree with you. At least it's is refreshing to see at least this type of approach and saying, listen, like we also have to recognize our own history, and it's okay if we do to the degree that we then try to do something about it. And mm-hmm. At least at least here it sounds like they're trying to do something about it. Like whether or not the family members will be entirely happy with the outcome, but once again, you know my point of view when it comes to a good negotiation, right? Everyone should be a little bit unhappy. A little bit so, unhappy. So I'm okay with that. Very good. All right. Well, should we leave that then where it's at? Yeah. We'll do a reparations part two some other time. I'm sure. I'm sure there's be developing stories. So we there'll got, be lots to talk about on that one. We got a lot to get to in Courage or Cringe. By the way, I've been thinking about having a like music intro for Courage or Cringe. I think oh, I we like need that, that to yeah, kind of like break that. the. You know what I mean? Like some. You can imagine how like the sound effects became popular in like radio because like you want to have a transition moment. Well, and this I is think our tra- in Courage or Cringe. I'd love to have it like a like a buzzer so that when I disagree, I'm like <laughs> wrong. It could literally just be. <laughs> 
that was a stupid comment. <laughs> right, exactly. Or it could be as, as intro, it could just be the sound of like, I don't yeah. know, it's just a giant piece of furniture falling over or something because we always uh, look at some interesting things. All right, so we've got uh, we've got some fun ones. Um, we're starting with, uh, what is it? What are we starting with? with Draymond Green. With Draymond Green and, and, and Megan Rapinoe, that's Megan right. Megan Rapinoe on pay inequities in women's sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another Twitter feud. Yeah, Twitter feud. So uh, this whole issue restarted with Draymond Green, who, for those of you that may not know, is a power forward for the Golden State Warriors, in a series of tweets decided to chime in on gender pay gap in sports uh, and essentially argue that women must build their own platforms, which will in turn increase revenues, Mm -hmm. which will in turn lead to better pay as reported by Yahoo Sports. Now, I pulled up the actual tweets, and it's like a laundry list of tweets that he put, so I'm not going to cover it all. I'm going to just, just mention two really quick, right? And it was like one after another. This was like, you know, Trump style, like just hit him, hit him hard, hit him often, and wear him out, right? Mm-hmm. So he, among a lot of things that he said, he was, he was saying, um, this is from his tweets directly. He said, I've been asked to do so many PSAs this month on women empowerment. I said no. It's hypocritical because the same companies that are telling women empowerment are not putting their money where their mouth is. Call on this company support y'all to infuse capital into the business. Stop allowing them to yell women's empowerment for the look. No company grows without funding. Y'all business can't grow with the proper funding. Uh, or I think it means without the proper funding mm-hmm. and storytelling. Make these huge companies commit money to your cause. That's empowering or don't yell women empowerment. He goes on to say other other things, but basically, and, and I mean, I think we summarized correctly. What she's basically is putting a lot of the onus specifically on women doing more and not just doing more but don't just but not just complaining about pay scale but actually do more to try to drive more revenue which could come from in many cases from investment by some of these companies that have been themselves at least publicly are saying that they support women's you know pay causes but the object of the criticism changed though because initially he started talking about you guys your companies or brands or whatever it is you should not be talking about it because you don't really believe this right and then he further he, but they he started double down even more as really specifically about females that's right? what i mean that's so that's he, what really got yeah so he started. then doubled down on yeah. on his opinions right a few days later telling right. reporters that he's really tired of seeing female athletes complain about the lack of pay because they're doing themselves at the service by just complaining. And it's the just complaining that maybe fired a course. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. You know, so of course his commentary did not go over well. Right. So as Megan Rapino, who is, you know, captain of the US women's national soccer team, immediately pushed back. So when we talk about equality in women's sports, we always talk first about investment and funding and resources and marketing and branding. And investing investing is not just the players, but the support staff, the coaching, the media, TV, media, print, all of it. Those are, are the things that we talk about first. And at the very end, we understand that all those th- if all those things are done, then yes, we will most likely be requiring a much higher salary than we're at, right? And we know this about all social movements and all people who are marginalized by race or gender, religion, sexuality, whatever it is, is not just their job to be the ones fighting oppression. Mm-hmm. We need all the support of people. We, not, we need all of the other people's support as well. So to have someone who does know this, what it's like to be oppressed as it relates to Draymond Green, in many ways, to keep that all back on female players or people who play female sports is just really disappointing, right? Mm-hmm. So, and look, in essence, she's saying, rather than trying to tell us what to do, especially on things that we already are doing, why don't you be part of the solution? Like, use your platform. You're a very popular player, very vocal player. Like, why not do more to actually help us in, the, in this process? And another instance here of where people are making each you know, decent points and talking sort of completely past each other, right? I mean, Draymond Green's, and I don't know anything about... Frankly, I know more about Megan Rapinoe than I know about uh, about Green uh, in terms of 
just outspokenness or politics yeah. or whatever it is. But he's a very, I would describe it this way. He's a pretty good basketball player. Uh-huh. He's a very passionate you know, player, um, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it tends to be sort of the heart and soul of the of the of the Golden State Warriors. But he's basically saying, right, which seems empirically and logically pretty reasonable, that you can't ask or expect uh, more derivative value from a thing if there isn't more sort of ultimate or total value in the thing to begin with. In other words, the whole idea of you can have more commission checks if you do more sales. Like if you think about it from a strict business standpoint, if the business is doing 20 million in sales and you get 50%, well, you're going to get 10 million. If it's doing 200 million, you're going to get whatever. So his point is, Use your platform or use your whatever to really focus on ways to make the business bigger. Therefore, you can have more of a, of a share of it. If you compare the WNBA's earnings to the NBA earnings, I mean, it's not even in the same galaxy, right? So, and his point logically makes makes sense, right? Her point is, we always talk about like the things that are structural first, and then we get to these other issues. But you should be more part of the solution. Well, it's kind of hard to argue with either one of those those well, those perspectives. Let me go with the first one. Yeah, I think he is either completely misinformed, mm-hmm. right, or or just naive about what the situation is. Because I agree with you that in a logical business sense, that is correct. But you, who plays basketball, who I think should be a little bit more aware of how the basketball world works, should understand that that is what these women have been, have been asking for. The reason why the, the it's not just the WNBA or the Women's Soccer League or the Women's National you know, Team, yes, they do less revenue. They also get significantly less support by broadcast companies, by like, by oh, sponsors. All of these reasons right. that directly tie to the amount of revenue that's being generated. Look, the first thing that happens when, when you're going to get a brand, and you know this, Charlie, is like to support a, a commitment like this will be like, great, how much promotion is this thing going to get? Because I want to make sure that my daughters are going to get like support sure. from you, but if you're not support, if you're not willing to invest in those sports to promote them to support them, like, then of course they're going to make less money. Look, the, and, especially mm-hmm. with her, with Rapino, she is part of one of the most successful like teams sure. in history, right? Globally known. And yet yeah. the men's team tends to make more money. Who continues to lose? They just they mm-hmm. just once again lost. They're not even be part of the of the Olympics. Once again, they didn't, they didn't make the team. But yet they continue to make more money. And that's the part where she's saying, like, listen, we're we are advocating for these things. But I think the part that she's offended about is like you shouldn't a know this already. Right. That we're not just saying pay us more, regardless of how much revenue is there. And she's right about that. And she makes it makes it sound like like that's exactly what they're doing. I yeah. think that's sort of offense number one. And number two is like, why aren't you being more of an ally and help us with this? Being that you do have a much larger platform, right? And that's fine. But he you know, and I don't know. He just may not agree with her version of the solution, and that's why he doesn't want to participate. I have no idea. Look, right. I think at the heart of this issue is the idea. Of what you just said is they they don't get the same kind of support, yeah. same kind of rights, and all that stuff. I agree with you. Maybe something like the World Cup would be the exception because that's. You know, f- broadcast by the same players, marketed by the same you know players, largely speaking across a global level, all that stuff. And yet, nevertheless, the ratings tend to be very different for the for the sports for the sorry genders of the teams, irrespective of the particular platforms. But let's agree with you for a second that it's true that they don't get the same level of support. What that presupposes is if that support was equal, the 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 mechanism or the ecosystem that provides the revenue that pays these folks would also be equal, and I don't think that's the yeah, case. I, and I, I agree with that. I don't think it would be the case. I just think it will be. I would just think those leagues, those events, those tournaments will make significantly more money if they had more support. Mm-hmm. But because, then why wouldn't they want to do that, though, Jesus? The, 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 the cynicism of the corporate world is that it always wants to make more money. If it was if it was a sure money maker, why wouldn't they be lining up to do it? 
I, I think in some extent because I th- the people that are running it don't really care for the for those women's sports. I think FIFA in general, I, I just I have yeah. a hard time believing that they actually care more about women's sports. Otherwise, you would see more investment across the globe for, for women's teams. Look, when you think about mm-hmm. the, the U.S., right, they have one of the most dominant soccer teams. You know one that, that is, as of late has gotten a little bit better is Brazil. Why isn't Brazil one of the most dominant soccer teams? Look at Brazil, the men's team, how dominant it is. It's because they don't invest in those teams. The, the government, the local government don't invest in the team. FIFA doesn't give it the, the, the right kind of support. That's why you see have some of these teams that are in the men's side, they're extremely dominant, have been for decades. Their women's teams are not very dominant. And I don't, and I think it's it's, it's a, a to me that's part of the problem is that they're not being invested by their by their by their countries. Mm-hmm. They're not being invested enough by by their actual cities. I agree with you. I don't necessarily think that it will be the exact apples to apples. It wouldn't really, be. Yeah. But but look at tennis. Yeah. Tennis yeah. is a great example. Women's tennis players they tend to do pretty well. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that sport actually treats them pretty pretty evenly. As a matter of fact, I would say in some cases the women athletes are even more popular than the than the men athletes. Uh, so yeah. to me, that's a perfect example of how it can actually be well. Even I, I, like track, for example. That you mm-hmm. get the women's track, you know, they do pretty pretty well historically compared to men's, right? And so I think there is precedent for other sports that are women led can do as well, or at least more relative in, com- in comparison that in the case of of what happens right now. See, I, I I agree with you that there would be a gap closing effect for sure if these guys all got behind it because you can increase anything if you focus on it. But I totally disagree that the reason that they're not just going out there and doing it is some like deep misogynistic urge because I'm far more cynical about the corporate world. I think anything that makes money, they chase anything. In fact, there's a lot of money making that goes on around deeply disturbing prurient things just because they make money. So I I, I just don't agree with that. I think that they'd be chasing it like a million, a million, you know, whatever. I I just think the approach that you see in tennis versus any of these sports, soccer, basketball is night and day. And they could both, I think, make money. I have and, a radical and, recommendation. Yes, tell me. And th- and this is and this is just to close this because we're talking about this like a deep dive, and it's really a courage or cringe. By the way, let me. But what was let the me, courage or cringe? So the courage, or, <laughs> the, the courage or cringe is on Dr- on Draymond's yeah, comments. Yeah, yeah Draymond's And comments. I'm gonna go with courage just because it started the conversation. Okay, even though, frankly, I don't think I agree with anything that he's saying, but I just go with courage for t- making the tweet and starting the conversation. Okay. Okay. Here's my radical recommendation. Yes. Men and women are different. I know that that's controversial to say today, but they are. And they're equal in a lot of things, dignity and every other respect, but they're very different physically. And I think as a result, what makes for entertainment things around athletics corresponds to those differences. And you can either look at it as a weakness or look at it as a benefit. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. CrossFit. CrossFit games and the CrossFit workouts, and I believe the pay for all the winners, is pretty equal, Mm -hmm. right? Because But the workouts are scaled. Right. The yeah. guy who's squatting, you know, the, 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 the guy who's um, sorry, not squatting, the guy who's, you know, benching or or yeah, or squatting is going to is going to do a weight that's significantly and maybe not significant, 30 to 35 percent higher than the woman in any particular workout. Right. If they put on a weight vest to go run the Murph or whatever it is, the women will wear a 14 pound vest. The men will wear a 20 pound vest. Mm-hmm. And what happens there is that watching that activity is equally impressive for both, even when they're side by side. So I look at, you know, Matt Fraser is an example competing with Tia Claire Toomey, who's the top female and the top male. They've worked out against each other on a scaled basis. And at the end of it, they're neck and neck, they're neck and neck, they're like about to do it. But they've, it's an exciting thing to watch. WNBA has a 10-foot rim. NBA has a 10-foot rim. Like, to me, it's the opposite of what CrossFit does. Why not make the, the rim 12 feet for men or 8 feet for women or however you sure. want to do that yeah, yeah, and do that. drive a dynamism in the game? By the way, same thing with soccer, okay? And I know that maybe... But, but, but that argument, 
in, in the basketball, Charlie, yeah. doesn't... I, I understand where you're going with that. Maybe it's not I think, that. I think that's just, interesting. But you don't see that in college basketball. Like, college women's basketball does get a lot more... It's it's a lot more popular. Maybe in part because Connecticut was so dominant over so many years that, yeah. you know, you have, maybe have certain sort of teams that have been so historic. Sure. But I don't I don't think that they've done the sort of scale portion. I, there may be something to it, to your point. Yeah. Because that does then change the dynamic of how the game actually is played. Same right? thing with soccer, by the way. The pitch is the same size for men and women. But when you watch a soccer game of women's soccer, and I definitely have watched women's soccer, like I watch soccer of, of all kinds. The pace of the game is different. It's slower. It just is because the pitch is the same distance and you have women cover it in a little bit more time than men do. So what if the pitch, like with CrossFit, what if the pitch was scaled? What if it was made smaller? I don't know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just using these in, as examples to yeah. drive dynamism in the game, which would in turn would d- drive the kind of entertainment that, that's value. The, that's the driver? I think that's it's a big part of tennis. It. Yeah, well, tennis is a game that's. I mean, it's it's like it's not the case for ping pong either. But you're talking about a much smaller. Yeah, but sort of, when you think about the speed that a tennis player, a male tennis player, can serve the ball versus the speed that a top female player, it's just different. Uh, it's very different, right? Very. But different. yet, yeah. When you think about the dynamism of the game, like it doesn't seem to be impacted by that, even though you have the same. But they don't use different size balls. They don't well, see what I'm saying? Again, like, just agree with you, but just use the CrossFit again as an example. If you basically have them using the same weight. Imagine that. Imagine that viewing experience, or, or or whatever experience in person, of seeing that with the same weight, with the same scale, and watching those athletes. Like, I, I don't think that that would be as compelling an entertainment experience yeah. as watching it the way that they do it with a, with with it being scaled. I mean, but somehow I, I there's think, no scaling yeah, in sports unless it's with weights. And I don't you're understand that. I think a decent point uh, in the sense that how if you scale the sport, how could it drive some additional dynamism to this sport? And make it, and maybe I think the best example is probably basketball. I would say, because it is played very very differently a men's a men's game versus a women's game. Just how much you do around the rim It's just by the, by the function that you know men that are playing basketball tend to jump higher. I mean, it just is what it is. So I think that's an interesting point. I have a I'm I'm struggling with allocating too much value to just that. I do think there is a piece here that. In some cases, I just don't feel like the women are getting the right level of support. I think and that's that, probably the UFC true. Is, is an interesting. No, you know, UFC. I'm sorry. Actually, UFC is actually an interesting one UFC as well. UFC is another one. Um, although, you know, to your point, your point about CrossFit. Um, what's interesting about CrossFit is how much it's driven less by the league and more by the individuals, right? Because in the case of like the really popular ones, mm-hmm. like them directly are big brand. Of course, uh, you know. But drivers. I'm saying, but I'm saying the the regulations and and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and parameters of the game, like the CrossFit Games, which is yeah, basically the yeah, Olympics yeah. of CrossFit, right? So yeah, they definitely have scaled it, which I think to your point makes it so that it becomes much more dynamic from that standpoint. Um, anyway, so that's me. Where'd you net out? And we have to move on. Yeah, I'm, cr- I'm cringe, of course. Yeah, I'm cringe. <laughs> no, no, love it. Not even close on that. Okay. One. Uh, all right. Vaccine passports, oh, Ooh, another fun one. It's a great right? one. So, uh, as we get into the next stage of COVID nineteen recovery, mm-hmm. all right, a new debate is emerging. Right, not just on how can we get the majority of the population vaccinated, but what role will the act of being vaccinated play in the recovery? Right now, this has been most reflected in the growing effort to require vaccinations, such as with a call for vaccine passports that Hawaii just uh, reported. Right, so Hawaii Governor. David Iga, things you were saying, is IGE, uh, last Friday approved a vaccine passport program for inner island travel that could begin as early as May and expand to out-of-state travel by the summer, as reported by Forbes. Now, if you recall, Hawaii has some of the strictest guidelines for people that, that basically had to um, quarantine when coming into the island. They were very, very strict. At some point, they weren't even letting people come into, come into the islands. 
so they've been very aggressive about their approach of how they've addressed um, COVID nineteen. And you know, for something for as a state that's surrounded by water, and the only way to get there is to actually travel into it from somewhere else. I mean, it, you, you know, have the yeah. There's the mechanism there to really be able to control those pipelines, right? right. So I, I I get it, right? right. Now, Hawaii is also working with developers of multiple apps, including Clear, Common Pass, and First Vitals to help with their pre-flight vaccination verification program. Mm -hmm. Now, that requirement can be then avoided if an individual provides a negative COVID-19 test within uh, with 72 hours of departure, right? which is actually similar to the, the rules they have in place for, I think, for international travel as well. Right. Of course, this has been a controversial issue that has already been you know, received pushback by politicians, especially Republicans, as they see it as discriminatory or privacy violations, right? Now, you've had now multiple GOP-led states, such as Florida, Texas, and Idaho, that have banned the use of vaccine passports, either only by the state or by private businesses as well, right? So in some cases, like for anything that's state-run, we're not going to have it, and even not a lot of private businesses. Uh, now, the White House already said that it will not enact the federal vaccine mandate, nor will it maintain a federal database of vaccine results. But many private businesses, such as cruise lines and concert venues, have already created venue ver vaccine verification systems of their own in an effort to reopen, right? So I'm curious about Florida, whether they're in the side of only by the state that it was banned or also by private businesses, being that so many of these cruise lines are based out of Florida and they were so impacted by, by COVID-19. So that's mm -hmm. to me, I, I, didn't get, I didn't confirm that, but I'm very curious to see where, where they knitted on that. And then last thing I would say from a state level, other different states, New York became actually the first U.S. state to launch a vaccine password program when it launched the Excelsior Pass in late March. Now, that pass can be used at entertainment venues and will allow for larger crowd size at concerts and weddings. Hmm. So, Charlie, courage uh, or cringe? I, I guess let's make it specific to Hawaii, and then we could talk about it in the context of this being a broader, a broader uh, issue. Sure. You want me to go first? Sure. Okay, so I'm a cringe um, for three principal reasons, and I'll try to make this compact because this oh, I is a... Uh, I love bullet points. Yeah, number one is I think it's an affront to human dignity to force anyone to inject anything into their body for any reason whatsoever or to do anything, frankly. I think um, like saying, hey, uh, orange juice is good for you. We can make that case. Let's say water is good. I don't know, something very benign. Orange juice seems to work, but we could use another substance. That's good for you. Everybody must drink it. I think that that is an affront to human dignity to force somebody to do that. So that's like one core reason why I'm against it. The second one is a medical one, which is that the problem with vaccining, the vaccine kind of um, uh, approach across the board as a blanket is it doesn't take into account the things that we go to the doctor for, which is to be treated as individuals. One example of this, my kids have all of their vaccination um, for whatever is required to be vaccinated, but we went through in the initial phases of a process to determine just how much immunity they had to begin with. That process is called titers. It's a simple test that you can give somebody to see what level of immunity they have against something to begin with before you inject them with immunity that if you give them too much of something, they may not actually need and it may actually right. be counterintuitive. So the idea that like we don't do that for vaccines, everybody gets the same one, the same level, same time, no matter what, like that to me just flies in the face of the kind of like independent medical care that I think people should get. By the way, I'm not suggesting anybody shouldn't get the vaccine. I think everybody should get the vaccine. I'm just saying the, we're talking about really requiring these vaccines. Now you can tell me you don't have to go to Hawaii. I get that. Yeah, you don't. No, no, no. You're right. I, I, I right. wouldn't say that. Uh, what I will say, and I have, though, one, is I have there, one last one. I'll send me the last one. Then I, then the, I, okay, the, okay. the last, last one, one is the kind of social dimension of this, which is that. 
I believe that with the technology that we have and with the opportunity that, you know, very resourceful entrepreneurial businesses have, we're very close. We already have it. The ability to kind of track who's got it, who had it, all that other yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I think that just gets... Yeah, that's probably the scariest part scary. of it. Scary. Well, it's yeah, scary yeah. because w- not for me to Even like... Even the, fa- the White House say we're not going to do it is like, the second thing we're not going to do it, like, you know, are you're doing you it. not going to do it? Right. But you could really? <laughs> but, but you could just imagine. I mean, look, we're talking about Megan Rapinoe and Draymond Green talking about each other on Twitter. Like, what if we knew that Draymond Green just got COVID and like, now we can t- like follow... Like, who knows? Just right. what layer right. of dimension that adds to our societal makeup. And so I'm against it. I'm against forcing or compelling vaccinations. By the way, the CDC calls this unethical and illegal. Like, it's not just like a religious perspective. I think this is a, it's an ethical and and and, and moral thing, uh, even if you don't subscribe to a particular faith. So, but I, I don't agree with forcing it. I know we're not talking about forcing it to be a citizen of the country or to live, live here or whatever. We're saying it's about travel, but it's a snowball for me. I think if it's one state, it'll be 50. And I think I can see that coming. So, but, but I guess, I, I'm against, I'm against the passwords. Um, Cringe. But, but it. But their their law doesn't actually force anyone to get the vaccine, right? Like what they're saying is that either show that you've gotten the vaccine or show that you're tested negative. So your point is that you will be against both of those. Or what well, a scenario, like if it was only the vaccine passport and you had to show that you had a vaccine, I think because your argument is very clear on yeah. that point. I'm probably, and I get it. I'm probably against I'll be, As a matter of fact, I'll be more on your, on your camp on, on that first one. Yeah. If there was no or element to it, I could, yeah, I, I get it. I understand why you would say that. Yeah, I'm against both of them. Um, we don't test other people for other communicable diseases um, in order to enter into other places. And why wouldn't we? Like, why Why just COVID? Why not, you know, hepatitis or or HIV or other things? Yeah, I know you have to have sex with somebody on HIV. Is, but Yeah, I think on things that are airborne. I mean, I, I want, that is a curious point. What about I wonder, the flu? People die from the flu all the if, time. Um yeah, and you're right. And also people can get vaccinated. For, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe part of it is also, I mean, it obviously has to do with the fact that it was, you know, that is seen as a pandemic and to the degree that people are getting mm-hmm. infected and dying, et cetera, mm-hmm. at the rate that they were or they are, to, you know, to a large extent. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, look, I understand your all three of your points. Wh- whether I agree or not, actually, I understand the logic and I could see the argument being well made about especially around every single person having to be vaccinated. Once again, it's coming from a person that believes that every person should try to at least agree that they can, that don't have a medical condition that doesn't allow them to, because you do have people in that camp as well uh, that, that really cannot medically be vaccinated, right, for, for whatever reason, um, including allergies, allergies and other things. Um, and I will be against the idea of having the vaccine passport if there wasn't an or. I think the way that they've done it, though, in my mind, is having this dynamic of this or showing your 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 covid negative what i see what i put it as it's all about is improving consumer confidence that's really what i see look and the, and the reason why i say it is not because of hawaii is that one little line that we, that we snuck in there about that in the like, private businesses are doing this already in cruise lines and in concert venues like look let's be honest any private business does not want to do that just out of the sake of being woke or being anything like unless they feel especially cruise lines like for them it has to be a, a, a clear path because if you recall there was like that fa- infamously that cruise line i forget now which one it was out of the many that got stuck out they wouldn't let them like be able to harbor because they had a bunch of they had an outbreak within a boat and i'm sure that that industry being demolished right so it's all about getting people confident enough to want to be go back into those boats knowing they're going to be in these enclosed spaces for long periods of time um, and then having that kind of a little bit of peace of mind that either you've been vaccinated and or you came in negative right, to the degree that, that you can. I, I get that. I mean, even look, even Joe Rogan, who we talk about quite a bit, he tests every single person that goes on, on, on his on his show. Right. And like that's the thing where like it's, it's 
I mean, I guess it'd be interesting if you put like a, a vaccine passport. That would be odd for him to say something like that. But even he's saying like, hey, listen, I want to make sure that we're all good here. Mm-hmm. Let's get you everyone tested. I'm sure yeah. not everyone could do that. So I like the optionality. I think that makes sense. I think it's all about the other day. It's all about improving consumer confidence. I was literally having this conversation um, the other day about about potentially like thinking about actual like vacation travel finally, right? And one of the questions that came up pretty quickly was like about Hawaii. And the only reason Hawaii came up is because of all these policies. I'm like, but I'm thinking to myself like, listen, this is the only state that I know of is even doing it, doing this. And has the mechanism to your point of controlling it to the point. So that you're saying it was it. a reason for you to consider going to Hawaii? Well, correct. Yeah, it was a reason to consider going to Hawaii because they have such strong protocols. Now, my the reason I push back and I'm like, well, no one else is doing that, and no one else literally within the states because you really can't do it. You can't control it the way that mm-hmm. these guys are unless you can mm-hmm. start putting literally checkpoints between states that are doing this and 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 having you you know have to prove it as as you go through state to state. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It's a reason for me not to go back to Hawaii. Lovely state, by the way. That I yeah. Love, so I, I mean, not. that's why to me I see it as as cur- courage in the sense that I I like at least that the way that they're doing to give people the optionality. And at the end of the day, I think if that improves uh, consumer confidence, then it will help you know Hawaii rebound much faster. I, look, and I mean, I am curious to know what the data is for Hawaii, which I didn't have. How much they have been impacted this entire time, being that they have been so strict the entire time, did they have a much better case in other states that with similar populations? I don't, I don't know, but my guess is probably the case because they were so strict the entire time as it relates to how they dealt with COVID nineteen. Got it. Okay. Well, you'll be hopping on the next flight to Honolulu, and I will be. Uh, yeah, actually, my my niece just got a, from just that. got accepted. Uh, oh, to University of Hawaii. Yeah, nice. yeah, machine. Yeah, congratulations. I'm very excited about her. So yes, I have. That must be awesome. Even to go to more of a reason to uh, to go to Hawaii. College in Hawaii. That's not uh, that's not bad. I would yes, say. Yes, yes. Uh, so she wants to study thing. marine biology, so that makes well, a lot of sense. For my son just yesterday uh, decided on Embry Riddle for his. Oh, uh, awesome! Yeah, so he's going to go do that and be a pilot. So all good. All right. Well, um, very good on the passports. Lastly. We left uh, our friend Tucker Carlson. How much time Let's do we have? Let's see if we can go for o, o for three. We're, we're, we're <laughs> o for, I have a feeling we will too. On this <laughs> go one. For You're going to go first, by the way. Uh, so, yeah, Tucker Carlson, right? So, as CNN, Although it's not really, a, it's about Tucker, but it, well, that's not what the courage of cringe is. Yeah, it's not is. the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as CNN reported, Fox Corporation Chief Executive Lachlan Murdoch dismissed the Anti-Defamation League's demand that the company fire host Tucker Carlson in a letter saying that the company saw no problem with comments Carlson made about the racist great replacement theory. Right. So in a letter, Mr. Murdoch said, Fox Corporation shares your value and abhors anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and racism of any kind. In fact, I remember fondly the ADO honoring my father with your International Leadership Award, and we continue to support your mission. Concerning the segment of Tucker Carlson tonight on April 8th, however, we respectfully disagree. A full review of the guest interview indicates that Mr. Carlson cried and rejected replacement theory. As Mr. Carlson himself stated during the guest interview, why replacement theory? No, no. This is a voting rights question. Of course, now that's, that was a statement, right? But of course, the ADL responded and completely disagreed, right? So Greenbalt, Greenblatt, uh, the ADL chief executive, said Carlson attempted to, first, to at first dismiss the replacement theory while in the very next breath endorsing it under the cover of a voting rights question does not give him the free license to invoke a white supremacy trope. In fact, uh, it's worse because he's using a straw man voting rights to give an underhanded endorsement of white supremacist belief while ironically suggesting that it's not really white supremacism. While your response references a full review of the interview, it seems the the reviews missed the essential point here. Um, So what did Carlson actually say? So we'll just cover that lastly here, which is during a segment on immigration with his friend Mark Stein, uh, who was filling in at a 7 p.m., Carlson invoked the Great Replacement Theory. By the way, the Great Replacement Theory is a, 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 at least a sentiment 
that has been expressed quite a bit by a number of folks in the you know white nationalists and people that really believe that other it's, races are here to basically replace the white race in the United States. It's right? a it's just so you know though the the genesis of this is actually it's a French um, movement or whatever that was is mostly oriented. It's now spread to other parts of Europe and now is being at least named here in this case in an American context, but. Mm-hmm. It's really originated in France with a, a, a it's a nationalist kind of a, a theory, yeah, yeah. and it's it's aimed at least in in the French uh, iteration of this against um, uh, you know uh, other other national groups, namely ones that are Islamic. So yeah. it's like it, it has the, that kind of. Background. And in the U.S. context is being used against Jews, is being used against African Americans, sure. immigrants mm-hmm. in general, right? So anyway, so during the segment, uh, Carlson said, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Oh, the white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use a term replacement. If you suggest the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's what's actually well. That's what's happening. Actually, let's just say it. That's true, and that's basically was was the comments that uh, the you know the ADL basically responded to. And and their point their point specifically is the fact that that kind of rhetoric really brings this sort of fringe theory or fringe you know a concept into mainstream into prime time, and it's been used quite a bit uh, by folks who want to basically cause harm. Yep. So, um, courage or cringe? Uh, from I'll, I'll start. Uh, I definitely think it's cringe. On um, Lachlan Murdoch. So yeah. So let's let's be clear. Yeah. This is specifically on on Lachlan Murdoch's uh, point about saying basically saying that they saw no problem in uh, in the comments that um, that Tucker Carlson made. Having said that, like, so I think it's cringe on their saying that basically it's no issue whatsoever, or even try to justify that he's at all like basically rejecting that theory because he's not. He's saying it is not. He's basically putting it under framework. Right? I agree with what the ADL is saying under voting rights, but it's still the same problem. I mean, Tucker Carlson at the end of the day is saying that that Democrats are basically leading leading in illegal illegal immigrants to replace voters to basically get Republicans out of office. That is just not true. It's just not true. Like I don't know what he's like, what stats he's looking at to make that kind of argument. Where is he getting that? And to make and to put it out there in those kind of terms, I think only feeds to the narrative that many people have that are in that sort of fringe group of of being racist and 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 being afraid of literally these immigrants coming in and taking their their taking their guns, taking their rights, all of that. So I think it's all it's all wrong. Like what the part that I'm not disagreeing necessarily with with Lachlan Murdoch is I don't necessarily think that they should be firing host the host Tucker Carlson, which is basically what they what the ADL was actually demanding for, right? Mm-hmm. That they fire him because of this. I, I don't feel like he, like Lachlan should have to decide or Mr. Murdoch have to decide whether or not to to fire him. And if he decides not to fire him, like that's on him. But what I'm disagreeing with, the cringe part of me is to try to say, try to justify those comments or to in any way make a case that somehow by the by the way that Tucker Carlson said it, that he's not actually giving validity to this, to this theory, even though he said it is not a, a white nationalist uh, uh, replacement theory. The part that I'm not understanding is why there was any need for a response. If you're, if the net was going to be that you didn't do much about it, why did it feel? Was there a need to respond publicly from the CEO of the company? Because, because that's a good point. I don't know. Tucker's an opinion journalist, and you know, uh, I'm sure that he has thousands of points of views that people disagree with vehemently, and even other organizations have complained about. And others that support everything that he says, but it's just not every one of those things gets to the CEO's desk. 
Right. So, uh, why? Well, like, what what triggered this? Well, what triggered I think, this? I mean, the ADL, but even that I mean, is it's, like it's interesting because the history has been, you know, if you think about uh, former President Trump's, <laughs> I get that mm-hmm. to say it every time, just to mm-hmm. remind myself, mm-hmm. relationship with Fox News. Part of his beef with with Lachlan, you know, Murdoch is that he thought that they weren't conservative enough. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if this is a case where you almost are, are they're trying to make this point to make to seem even more conservative because there's been like a rep that they're not as conservative as at least historically that they have been. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. It's actually it's an interesting point that you're bringing up. I don't know why he felt they needed to respond to it. But that, that could be one theory yeah. I think that I would have as to why that would be the case. And I definitely don't even see this as a conservative or liberal issue. I see this more as a, you know, nationalist populist versus not potentially if it's even that. But I, but I understand the point that you're making. So look, I think on this one, um, I probably agree with you. Sorry. Oh, that's not, we were going to go over three, Charlie. No, you're ruining it. To change it up. So I agree with you in the sense that without the, the basis of understanding what drove the response to begin with. I don't get why we're responding. I don't right. understand what the issue is. Maybe it's not worded the, 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 the best way. I just think that the whole thing invites more suspicion right. than it's worth. If you really believe that there's nothing there, and we know Tucker Carlson is an opinion journalist, that then why address anything? I think the whole thing makes it messier by kind of saying something. I think that if your net is going to be, I don't see anything wrong with it, that you need to leave it alone, I think. So, so I would give it a cringe. Right. Having said that, for the you know to be a hundred percent clear, I completely disagree that Tucker Carlson is racist. I completely disagree that you know uh, that in that this exchange, even though there's you don't you think this exchange is racist. That that what Which, is so I don't think that he is a racist at all. But that's different. I, yeah. I, mean, I mean, look, that's all that's opinion. Whether or yeah. not because we don't know well, all of it's opinion. I, I, I'm, I just think, say, I'm just saying, do you don't think that comment is a racist comment? I think that we're branding what he said as something and. And then adding all the baggage of all of these things to what he said rather than actually looking at what he said, right? His case, his point in his own words is that demographic change is key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. That's his point. And he's saying that in order to do that, by the way, we talked about this on the show just the other day, that a Playboy article in the 60s made all the hippies moved into Vermont and they cha- because the voters changed, the demographic profile of the cunt- of that state changed because right, a lot but, of but, a but lot that of people demographic, were Yeah, I agree with you. But that demographic change that he's specifically attributed to is voters, obedient voters coming from the third world, which mm-hmm. so he's referring to immigrants coming from other places mm-hmm. as being what's shifting that, that, that vote. And that's just, but he. So you don't believe that so there I, is I think any. There is a, there's a racist point of view. But when let, you're allocating. That's like. There, you know, it reminds me of. It reminds me of the. You know, mm-hmm. Mexico doesn't send their best people. They're saying, "Oh, they're rapists." And I forgot what the other thing he said. Whatever, right? Like, right. it's. To, I put those in very similar kind of comments. I think. I think that it's definitely in the category of minimizing other people and diminishing who they are and diminishing their sense of humanity, which is even in my mind. Maybe that's why I don't really look at it as a color thing, even worse than if it was color. I think it does aid in diminishing other people or putting them in a category where there's somebody who's be- worse than you are. Yeah, I don't, I don't, idea. I don't see it as a because they're a particular color, or whatever. I th- that's why I said I don't see it as a conservative liberal thing. I th- see it more as a nationalist or not kind of thing to begin with. But, but m- I guess my bigger question is, and, and maybe you don't agree with this. Do you believe that the Democratic Party has a strategic part of their plan or strategy to have more immigration into the country because they know that statistically people who move to the country end up supporting Democratic policies more? Do you believe that that plays into their strategy whatsoever? I I actually don't um, because the Democratic Party has not been 
that welcoming to immigrants either. Okay. Right? Like, it just hasn't. Like, if you think about even the amount of, the amount of people that President Obama deported, it was a lot of people. Like, this is not a party that's been super welcoming to immigrants. Mm-hmm. You think about the last time there was like actual real immigration reform. Yeah, you could talk about DACA as sort of like a placeholder. Sure. But that's what it was like real immigration reform was, was that with Clinton? Clinton, I think is what it was, right? I forget not when it was, but like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there's the last like really, really big one, right? I don't think the Democratic Party is that welcoming to immigrants. I just don't. Like, I think the, the, the Democratic play is much more young people. Yeah. Because young people tend to be significantly more liberal. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be kind of across the board. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't see it. I don't know what we could point to right now that would say that, that they've been well, much more open to immigrants as a, as a play. Like, and your point is still well taken. The fact that, yeah, do I statistically think that, anyway. that people that are coming, you know, that, are, that tend to come from other uh, third world countries to mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson's point of view will be more Democrat than not. Yeah, probably. But that's not the reason why they lost Georgia. That's not the reason why they, they you know, they lost the presidency. No, I agree with you, but it is. See what I'm saying? Like, right. Like, he, that's the agreed. part that I agreed. I but I think, I think in, in really kind of reading his words and trying to understand and giving him the benefit of the doubt in terms of what he, what he um, was saying is saying that the demographic change in a particular place sometimes corresponds with different voting behavior. Again, using the case of Vermont as an example. That's exactly what happened in Vermont. That's how Vermont became blue. Yeah. We, ha- we were talking about Charles Blow on the show a few weeks ago. His whole point is move more black people to the South yeah. and then you can turn it blue. So m- I guess my point is if you fundamentally disagree that there's an advantage that the Democratic Party would have by having more people who are immigrants vote, then I guess there's not much at stake for that for you. If you do believe that that's the case. I just think that the history of how the Democratic Party, ha- the Democratic Party has treated immigrants is not one that I mean okay. it's very encouraging to us to them being that open to trying to get more people okay. from other I mean, countries. And, that, and I'm not going to like argue that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm not saying that they're super wel- welcoming. I guess all I'm saying is that if there, if you believe that there is a strategy to win elections and if you've got this proportion that votes this particular way, you could believe like he does that there is a strategy to actually create more of those voters in these particular things. Look, the net yeah. net of it is that the what I what I completely disagree with the way that this was phrased and what words were said is this idea of minimizing and reducing other people by virtue of where they come from, right? You right. can disagree with them politically. Even if they all voted Democrat, I still think it's wrong to speak this way. But I don't think that he's racist and I definitely don't think that um, Lachlan Murdoch should have fired him for this, especially because yeah, no, the guy's an, fire, yeah. an opinion um, journalist. So, anyway. but, I, but I definitely think he's super racist. I just, yeah. I, okay. I, and I think this is a, 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 well, I will say, look, I can't say that he's racist or not. I just think this comment is very racist in the way that, it, that he's saying it. Okay. Whether or not we think that in general he's racist. Okay. But we came close to, so we, we uh, came to close. being 0 for 3. You still ruined it, I well, think. I, well, I like to break things up by agreeing with you from time to time. So, you know, just to kind of keep it. Uh, <laughs> Even when we disagree. We agree at, on, the, on the disagreement. That's as we funny. say in Spanish, para variar. Right? We want to change it up a little bit. All right, Jesus. All right. So that's uh, time to sign off. But I uh, want to remind everybody to keep listening. Obviously, subscribe. Check out patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. Fun shows coming up as always. Anything else? Parting? Uh, no, no, no. This is good. Awesome. I'm glad to be back uh, recording this. Hopefully right, you guys everybody. enjoy it. We'll see you again next week on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. 
We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Zucchini and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.